0: Welcome to Mind at Work. We help you find professional fulfillment while navigating the ups and downs of having a human mind. I interview world-class psychologists, neuroscientists, and executives on mental wellness in the workplace. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Parmjit Singh. Dr. Singh is an assistant clinical professor with the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University and has a PhD in psychology. He also helps businesses of varying sizes develop practical mindfulness-based programs that help with resilience, Stress management, self compassion, and leadership. In our chat, we cover what mindfulness is, how to cultivate mindfulness, what self awareness is and isn't, and how to implement and evangelize mindfulness programs at your organization. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. Pramjeet, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Rui. Thank you for having me. Big topic right now that's been trending, especially over the past couple of years, albeit has been around for thousands is this notion of mindfulness. And one thing that I, I, at least that I've observed is that there's still this maybe misunderstanding or misconception of what mindfulness actually is. And that might be a result of, because it was popularized so quickly that people didn't really go to the roots of really what mindfulness is. Would you be able to provide more of an explanation to clarify what is mindfulness? So the simpler way
1: to think about mindfulness is is that it is being present in the present to the present. If it sounds like a tongue twister, it's just simply being present to the emerging experience of whatever is happening, being open to the reality of the moment, to be very objective. And that's pretty much the technical aspect of the mindfulness, the way people often allude to is But that's not the only story about mindfulness. That's one aspect of the spectrum or or the tradition of mindfulness. It has its moral and ethical reasoning. It also has an emphasis on developing experiential um, embodied wisdom. So that's the three parts usually what constitute mindfulness. But what we see often in the corporate culture as well as even in normal mindfulness classes is that they focus more on training yourself to be present or to be present. But even then, definitionally speaking, if they're correct, I think there's a lot more misunderstanding about the knowing something intellectually, being mindfully intellectual, uh, being intellectually mindful and also being mindful experientially. The tradition suggests that the old idea, know thyself, You can know yourself through thoughts, through tests, through personality tests, all sorts of things. But there's another way. Can you know yourself from experience of being within your body and mind? And the actual tradition, in fact, points to that. The idea of mindful is that can you be mindful at experiential level? And that's what translates into the idea of embodied wisdom, that you develop your wisdom by working through your own self, through the individuality of your own experience. How does it work exactly? So,
0: assuming I'm in I'm in a situation, and we'll use the context of work, obviously, because that is the premise of the podcast. So, I'm in the workplace right now, working remote. How do I practice that mindfulness in my
1: day to day? In a simpler way, the the way mindfulness functions is through the training we are able to reframe and reorganize our relationship with the emerging experience and reactions so for example when you are at work you uh, whether you are at home or at your workplace you know there's there's a constant communication or interaction we have with other individuals and each interaction has the potential to set off some reactions and some of those reactions could be positive some of the reactions could be negative Usually we are okay with the positive reactions, but really the, the negative side will often come as a, as a kind of a dissonance, as a wear and tear on the body and the mind. You will feel stressed out, and then the stress, if it's not punctuated, then that will lead to a slew of other things. So in, in a simpler way, the way mindfulness function is the systematic way of training your mind so that you can stay present to the emerging reality of whatever is happening, even if it is unpleasant and not react to it unfairly or un- prematurely. And even if you have to react to it, you can do so after a moment of pause, because reaction that happens automatically would always have a different quality than if the reaction that comes after a moment. And there's many times in our workplaces and in our personal life, we have to react. It may be just a safety issue, but even a moment of pause A moment of intention and and deliberateness can do a great service the way the decision is made and the quality of the decision that has been made.
0: Right. So if I understand correctly, we encounter a negative trigger, I guess, some sort of emotional response as a result of an engagement or a conversation that we could potentially have with a colleague. And most of the time we get triggered and might respond in a certain way, externally and internally meaning that i would get ang- you know i'd probably get anxious or angry or sad or upset i'll feel all these sensations if i understand correctly what you're suggesting is try to take a moment first before you have that reaction to better understand it is
1: that right yes and no the one is that yes we we would ideally would like to do that no in the sense that usually that's not how the brain functions the brain is often on auto mode. So it will perceive the reaction, it will perceive the event, and then it will automatically react because that's what evolution has done to the brain to make it a kind of a system which responds efficiently or react efficiently to emerging threats around us. So if stress is, if you feel stressed about your conversation with the individual, then the brain is going to perceive it as a kind of a threat because it cannot, figure out things in detail. They just want to see that anything that is, you know, making you uncomfortable is a stressful, it's a threat, and it will react to that. So this is where the idea, which I uh, was talking to you before, that intellectually it might be easier for an individual to be mindful when things are going great. So for example, you know, everything is going great in your life. There's no negative circumstances, no negative reactions. And something happens and you have a moment to pause before you react because other things are going okay. There's not an overload on your brain. However, in most of the circumstances, that's not how we respond because we usually don't have even that moment to pause and remind ourselves to not react. And this is where the intellectual aspect of the mindfulness, which has become quite popular uh in our in our culture where people say that you don't have to do actual practice you can be mindful but just re- be remembering or reminding yourself to be mindful and to me that will work perfectly if you have no problems in your life you have all the time to learn and be reminded that be mindful but that's not why people practice and that's not how real life functions we often do worse when we are running short of resources mental resources or physical resources so that's where the idea of practice and training your brain and the mind to be present through a systematic process comes in handy.
0: And what are some good examples that we can implement on a day-to-day basis to start to cultivate that skill? Because I'm assuming it's gonna take quite a bit of time for us to really get better
1: at being more mindful. Take much time, it's, it's just a couple of things we have to keep in mind. Because if you think of it as a kind of a stress management technique, then people are most likely going to do this technique when they are stressed out, and even then it's not going to be that greatly helpful because they are already stressed out and there will be more expectation to be less stressed out at the end, and that expectation will keep on interfering process, but they still be better off at the end than they started at, so there will be difference. that's called the functional relief, but immediately afterwards they will go back to the same being highly strung up and all sort of. Thing. Another way is to Just systematically use it as a skill development approach that you are actually learning a different skill set, which allows you to navigate and negotiate the emerging experiences, reactions, interactions, and communication, and all the negative stuff that comes within the workplace, so that you can manage those much more efficiently. So now that approach is literally shift the way we look at mindfulness. Now it's a skill. Because we consider it a skill, it will require us to think of in a long-term way. And because we are going to think about it in a long-term way, it will ask us to be disciplined, and it will ask us to be regular. Just the way you develop any other skill, you will bring that kind of approach to it. That actually helps at a personal level. So if I'm actually taking that approach, then I'm more likely to stick with it because I would most likely be conscious of the fact that a skill has to take a time to develop itself. So I will be patient. I will be more persistent. I will be more disciplined. And then at organizational level, if people actually take that approach, they are more likely to be patient uh, in seeing the impact of mindfulness training and program in a much longer way. So it's not a one month thing that, okay, you you bring somebody in and have them go through certain exercises and you expect your place to be mindful and people to be mindful. So that is actually, to me, so it's a very important that we take a skill development approach and then when we take that skill, uh, skill development approach, there's a, from there on, there's a systematic way to approach this practice and, and to nurture it and to, to develop that. How would you take that approach at, a, let's say, an organization? How would you take the skill development approach of mindfulness? So the way I do that, I usually start with it. that the, Think about one thing. Each one of you who shows up at work is an individual and a common denominator in everything he or she does all the role that is being played by that individual, whether at personal level or professional level, are being informed by the quality of his or her mind. If she or he has a mind which is calm, collected, non-reactive, intentional, gentle, compassionate, that is going to automatically inform and underlie the quality of the work she does at workplace. So her communication would be underlined by that. Interactions will be underwritten by that. Her approach to conflict would be underwritten by that because that's the quality of the mind. So at the end of the day, each one of us are the common denominator in everything we do. So the whole one of the ideas behind mindfulness training, taking it a more skill development approach, is that by doing that, you're reorganizing your whole mental apparatus, so that. Once you're calm and collected insight, regardless of whatever roles you play, you will show up in that space, in that term and shape. You know, if I'm calm and collected in my mind, then whether I talk to my spouse or my kids or to you or to my colleagues, to some extent that quality will always be present because now I have actually developed that kind of a skill set. I don't need to be remembered for most part that I need to be compassionate, I need to be, you know, this way or that way, because now I have worked it. Just like if you're good at something, you will notice that by doing that kind of a working on that skill set, you have automatized large part of your skill domain. Some things just come to you by the flick of the finger because you have actually worked it enough. And the same thing happens with... uh, with the most of the meditators and mindfulness practitioners, especially serious practitioners, because now they have automatized the non-impulsive aspect of being. So it's interesting that we do react automatically, but you can actually automatize the opposite also. You can automatize or cultivate that kind of behavior and mental patterns so that they become the automatic default patterns. So if we have a default pattern to begin with, through the mindfulness practice, we can actually instill, nurture, and create, and maintain a different kind of default patterns, which will be of different quality. Right. This
0: is for me, and and we actually spoke about, about this in a previous conversation that we had. And it's something that I find really interesting. And it's around awareness and knowing the importance of mindfulness. And how do you get folks essentially is the conversation we had last time that are not necessarily convinced that mindfulness is for them because they ultimately have a lot of impact as well on others and their surroundings. But, and in some cases, like how do you convince the non-believers of mindfulness and its, uh, and its benefits, but how do you start to cultivate a culture or do you, where mindfulness is a practice internally and people understand the underlying benefits
1: both at a personal level, but also at a professional level? So there's a few ways you can do that. One is, means you can give them data. There's a, quite a bit of historical evidence behind it and, and quite a robust scientific evidence behind that, the value of mindfulness in personal, psychological, biological health. well as mind the value of mindfulness at workplace we we know from um, brain imaging studies that people who practice in especially in the corporate culture that people who are mindful and self-aware in a non-judgmental non narcissistic way they they actually make better decisions as i actually pointed out earlier too um there's a there's a heightened collaboration among team members, even when the money is involved. So there's a one fascinating study a few years was published that they actually rigged the game in a way that people were um, exposed to a monetary game, which means that you have to let go of the money. And they noticed that when people practice mindfulness, they are willing to in fact be less self entrusted even when the money is involved. Um, so which means that enhances your collaboration. People are willing to let go for a larger communal, uh, safety or communal self. Uh, we know from research that employee wellbeing goes up if the leader is self-aware. And I will add one thing, self-awareness in itself is not, not the only thing. All of us are self-aware to some extent, whether that's a conscious or unconscious. Our brain is always picking up information. One of the things I would like to point out and un- invite our listeners to think about is that you need a self-awareness which is non narcissistic as non-judgmental because otherwise we become self-untrusted because self-awareness can have a, a deleterious impact. For example, if you ask a person who is very anxious or has anxiety problems or those kind of things, if you ask them to be self-aware, it is going to ramp up with their anxiety so there has to the self awareness is a good place to begin with but it is not the end in all kind of thing self awareness has to be held in the space of non judgment if there's a judgment especially premature impulsive judgment it is going to do exactly the opposite and we might even reinforce the older negative unwholesome uh, you know patterns right like self absorption i believe is the other
0: side of that coin right where instead of being aware of yourself in a positive potentially way or in a constructive way you're now just immersed in everything about yourself to a point where it's just overindulgent uh, and it's too much about you
1: yep exactly means i think and sometimes i have seen that the self-awareness that okay we pay attention pay attention pay attention be self-aware self-aware people do this thing because they are not self-aware I think that's only the part of the story. It's not, I think it's, it's incorrect to assume that people are not aware. I think they are aware mostly in a self-untrusted way. And when we are aware in self-untrusted way, it skews our perception or our relationship with others. And that's actually, in fact, compromises collaboration at workplace that would also compromise ethical decision-making. If I'm too self-untrusted, I'm not going to pay much attention to other people and the implication of my decision-making on other people. Uh, it also cuts into the compassionate leadership, so and all sort of things. The corporate social responsibility will, in fact, will also be uh, impacted through that thought process.
0: Right. So one of the topics that I that is especially important to me is this notion of presenteeism. Right. Is the employees or team members that are physically at work, but potentially mentally checked out right? It could be for a variety of reasons. And it doesn't even have to be mentally, but they can have a physical injury or psychological injury or trauma that's not allowing them to perform at their best. And I found personally that mindfulness has a significant impact on your overall well-being. It allows you to really understand how you're feeling for me. And it allows me to take a moment to reflect and then after the reflection, stay in the present moment, is focus on what's at hand and what I can control, not anything else beside that. And one example that I gave you before that I really enjoyed was from one of Thich Nhat Hanh's books on how to really cultivate this mindfulness practice. Because like we talked about earlier, it's been so popularized and people also, in, from what I've seen at least, is confuse mindfulness with meditation. and They think it's the exact same thing when it's not but you can actually cultivate mindfulness by doing something as simple as washing the dishes. So you're washing a dish after dinner or lunch or whenever, and instead of thinking about the thing you're gonna do after you wash the dish, is only focus on the dish, but also be kind to yourself and compassionate where if your mind does wander to something beyond the dish to accept the fact that that's normal. And then bring your mind back to the task at hand, which is the dish. And I think that speaks to how you cultivate the skill. If, if you know, if that's and correct me if I'm wrong, but how do you create this repetition around cultivating this skill of mindfulness? And it's just it's being conscious and aware of bringing your mind back to that present moment, but also not being kind to yourself in the process.
1: So I would add a couple of things. Basically, large part of the mindfulness training has a practical application to that. How do you bring your practice off the cushion or off the chair or off the mat into real life? Because if it is not, then it is not very useful. Okay. The thing to, uh, from as a practitioner, as a student, uh, I, I always keep in mind, and I always try to point others to that your quality of being with a dish as you wash or quality of peeling a orange or eating an apple or, or just looking at the plate of your salad is very much dependent upon some other things. If you have trained yourself in a different environment, then that is what we call transferable skill. So what comes when you are with the dish, if you have worked on your mind on the mat or on the chair, you will notice that the transferability is a lot more efficient and easy. For a person, if you practice, you have a formal practice. So there's a formal practice, which is actually where you take a dedicated time to work with yourself. And then there's informal practice. The informal practice is also like all sort of other things, which are not, you're not formally engaged, but you're still keeping the quality of the mind attentive. So the washing dishes, peeling oranges, eating apple, uh, putting out the garbage, talking to your neighbor, talking to your colleague. That is a part of informal practice. One of the things which often get lost in the translation, and and I would invite our listeners to actually test drive this idea, that if you do the first one, uh, the, the formal practice, you will notice the second practice is easier to do. If you do not do the first one, you will have to struggle a lot, and most likely the impact is not going to be that great because your basic structure of the mind is still not much reorganized. So those two things work together. The the quality of the formal practice will inform the quality of the informal practice and vice versa. But if you take out the formal practice and ask people that, okay, just pay attention to only washing dishes or only peeling oranges or only walking, you will notice, unless that's the only thing they do and they spend a lot of time doing that, that quality will substantially go down. And, and one thing I would again invite uh, listeners to think about is that even Tikkunathan, these people, all these uh, you know, grand masters of meditation, they have a very dedicated formal practice. The reason they can peel off a, a orange with the same quality of mind is not because that's the only thing they do. They have a very dedicated practice which allows them to transfer that skill into that skill. So it brings me to the, one of the very important thing I think we need to keep in mind that formal practice would actually give you the foundation. So all other things happen. Let's
0: say as one of the key takeaways of, of our talk, if now I'm excited, now I know, look, I get the value of this. I understand that there's a difference between formal practice and informal practice, formal practice being more important than informal. But the informal providing value in ensuring that you're continuously exercising that muscle, so to speak. Going back to the formal practice, what are the steps I take now? Like, what do I do if you were to just say, "Rui, go do this thing right now, step by
1: step"? How would I do that? So one thing I would add that I I think it I in my mind I don't think that. Formal and informal practice, they can be measured in the value. They serve a very different purpose. The, the reason why I actually put it out, because I often get into conversation with people, they say that, okay, I don't need to sit and work on my mind. I can just pay attention to the things I do. I think that's a cautionary tale for that. And that often I, I tend to think as a practitioner, that gives them a wrong idea. So I don't, really don't think that this is one was more valuable than others. There's a transferability of skill set. That's very important in that context. So having said that, I think there's a the formal practice is, is very simple. The mindfulness practices and the practices that where it comes from, that you pick something within yourself because it's not based on any belief system. So, for example, whatever is common to all of us, we breathe, all of us breathe. We have bodies. We walk. So can we pick something within us and then pay attention to it in a very long on a long-term basis? So for say for example, I in order for us to learn about anything, we have to pick a subject matter. You want to learn about chemistry, then you will most likely pick up chemistry and you learn about it in a very systematic way. You know, you memorize, you take tests, all sorts of things would happen. You just simply reverse the process. If you are actually trying to learn yourself about yourself, you actually do the same thing. So you know the object. The only difference between chemistry and the person who is going to know himself or herself is that chemistry has it, there's an object and there's a subject. So there's a clear distinction, which when I'm trying to know myself, there's no such clear distinction. So I'm the observed, I'm also the observer. How do I actually know myself? So, in order for me to know myself, I need to pick something which is very intimate part of me. Body is intimate part; I live in it. Breath is another intimate part; it literally provides me life force. So, I can pay attention to those kind of things. So, for for example, if somebody comes to my classes, I say that you can start with the breath. It's the easiest, commonest, cost-effective way to come to yourself. You have a breath. You have some sort of ability to pay attention to it. And you don't need to be dressed up in a particular way. You know, you don't need to spend any extra amount of money to be in a particular way. This is what you need. And then you start paying attention to it. So it has a three-step process, which is observe once you have chosen the object. If your object is your breath, then observe your breath in an and then acknowledge the experience that come from observing your breath. You will notice that after a few moments of observing your breath, your whole life is start to show bubble up, all the things that bothers you, the things you've done in the past, you should have done differently, things you want to do in the future, you're worried about, everything will show up because it's the same mind. And then the second part will be that acknowledge the experience that come from that observation. Anytime you pay attention to anything, it is going to generate an experience. And that experience can be pleasant or it can be unpleasant. Usually the way we work with the experience is we run towards the present and run away from the unpleasant. Mindfulness people say, okay, you can't really live life like that. You can't really keep on disregarding anything you find unpleasant. You cannot keep running towards things which you think is pleasant and it's going to make your life happy. What about you develop a different kind of a relationship with this experience? Rather than reacting to this experience, at least impulsively, just acknowledge them at this moment, that you feel unpleasantly, you acknowledged it. Now, the third step, which is the most important transformational yet challenging step, is that see if you don't react to it in the same way you have done in the past. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. People are okay with picking an object, People are okay with even with some kind of struggle, acknowledging the experience that come from, but it is incredibly challenging to actually not react to something we have always been reacting. But this challenge is what in fact shift the gears in our mind. So anytime I do not react to the same experience in the same way, I start chipping away those held habit patterns. So few things are happening. One by recognizing you have a habit pattern. Second, by not reacting or consolidating the same habit pattern in the same way, you have now started shift to gear in in your mind. And then all this happens in a kind of a, a kind of a continuous understanding that things are temporary. It means things come, things go. And then you don't choose. If you choose not to react to them by the nature of things as they arise and pass, they will come and go. And you can now develop a kind of a, this is what is called non judgmental self awareness. You are now the observer of everything that is happening in your mental landscape and you are not reacting to it. Now you can have a pure perception to, so to speak.
0: Right. And when somebody's going through that experience and they've hit the third step, as you mentioned, when the rubber really hits the road and you start to experience those responses, whether they're, you know, let's say maybe even anxiety or anger, and you start to like feel agitated, is the thought that as long as you keep coming back to that experience and you don't run away from it, but you, in, you encounter it time and time again, is the assumption that you will naturally start to really understand that more over time and be able to
1: better cope with it. Yes, means anytime you pay attention to something for a prolonged period of time, unless it is a really defective way to look at it, we start to develop clarity about it. it. Means when you started as a student and when I started as a student, my understanding of things at that time and now is very different. Because by focusing on things, we are more clear about certain things. Maybe we we may not have the The perfect clarity to it but it's still going to be clear so so one of the things that just because you have been paying attention to something for so long it develops it develops kind of concentration skills but also brings you a sense of clarity about things so the anger coming up you start to realize where this anger is coming from why it is coming up only in this context it will also tell you in a very counterintuitive way whether you have to deal with this anger or whether you have to deal with the object of that anger. Maybe anger is related to somebody who really hurt you, betrayed you, and then maybe actually deal with that. Now, instead of reacting to the anger, you can approach that anger from a state of clarity that I need to actually sort this out. It keeps on coming into my mind and it might I need to actually pay attention to it. So now you are actually paying attention to that anger, not as a way to run away from the anger, but any way to in fact deal with it so that it can let you, it can actually leave you aside. And this is also very counterintuitive because in mindfulness, not we don't let go of all the things. It's just simply that try not to react impulsively. There are a lot of things you and me, all we have to do in real life. We have to make judgment calls. We have to make decisions. Uh, we have to sometimes put our foot down But the only difference being doing it mindfully and mindlessly is that in the former, you're doing it impulsively, reactively, and just because this is how the habit pattern has functioned, in the latter cases, you're doing it much more intentionally, deliberately. There's a quality of clarity behind what you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful. I think it adds a lot of clarity around the purpose of mindfulness, how it works, what the intentions are. Around practicing it. And my last question here for you, just before we sign off, is we understand the importance of cultivating this practice. And in the workplace, you know, a lot of things get in the way. If there are, let's say, people in the workplace that do want to start to evangelize incorporating a mindfulness practice in the workplace, how have you seen one being incorporated that has had more success than not?
1: I think when I do these things, I always say that, you know, you can, if you approach it from the stress management technique, you're not going to get a, you know, bang for your bucks. But approach it that you are trying to make the mind of your employees much more efficient, clear, and non reactive. You want your employees to have that kind of quality of mind. And if you can instill them and provide a medium at workplace to do that, your bottom line is going to improve, if you're if you if you're thinking about your bottom line. And that's very important for most of our organizations. Um, so that is going to improve. It was also going to stem the bleed on your resources. The bleed comes in the form of sick leaves, absenteeism, all sorts of things. So people can be present, they can be here, they can concentrate, they have mental resources to pay attention to whatever needs to be paid attention because they are not too many times hijacked into the future. They are not worried about that. And that also creates a culture of psychological safety. So the way I will, I will actually introduce that, if you think about a few things and think about that you are actually equipping your employees with a newer skill set, I find people are more amenable to that suggestion because they want their employee to be skillful. And especially when that skill can improve the culture of the organization it can improve the citizenship behavior of the employees towards the organization. It can inspire creativity. It can, you know, build up resilience. Uh, it can it can create a culture of safety and vulnerability and sensitivity And I think that's what happens when we do that. You know, if I'm not caught up in myself and trust that much, I am more likely to listen to you because I don't see you as a threat. So I can collaborate with you. We can work on a shared interest. But when I'm caught up in my self-interest, I'm going to be sabotaging everybody else because I'm so consumed with my own self. So these are the few things I, I do that think about it as a skill set, think about it in the context of the culture, organizational citizenship behavior, employee well-being, all sort of things. And we know the evidence is there that it, it helps greatly.
0: Yeah, and I think this is a perfect segue. I think those are great examples. And you've done some great work with global organizations implementing some of these programs there. If the listeners want to learn a little bit more about mindfulness, about the work you do and the programs you implement in order to incorporate mindfulness programs into organizations to improve culture and all of the other factors that you outlined previously, where could they find you?
1: So I have done work uh, in a variety of group programs, individual corporate programs. We have done work with Microsoft, Roche Canada, Fairmont Hotels Group, Willis Towers and Watson, and, and other corporate houses. Uh, so they check out. They can check out my work on my website. It's com. So that's my name.com. I, do, I have started offering individual corporate coaching. Now, so people are interested in actually spending one-to-one time because of the the COVID time, so I'm happy to chat in whichever way I can be helpful. And and then the group programs, long-term programs, short-term program, we have done one hourly session, we have done half-day program, we have done weeks on end. It all depends on whatever the corporates are actually looking for and organizations, what are their needs are, what they are hoping to get in return, what is the return to investment you know, thought process in their mind.
0: That's helpful, so parmajitsingh.com, and social media, Twitter,
1: social media. Yes, uh, you can check out. I started doing a podcast. It's called Passing Clouds Podcast. Still, it's in the experimental phase, but it actually provides a kind of context of all the things, a little bit of tips and uh, all sort of uh, necessary things if you want to go on that path. And then it is found at Dr. Parmjeet Singh PhD uh, YouTube is also there. I usually don't like to put my designations, but I realized that actually my name has been taken by somebody else. So so the only way to distinguish was to put all these kind of things in front and the back. And then the Facebook page is Passing Clouds, Mindfulness, or my phone. You are most welcome to send me a message, 289-339-3464. I'm happy to chat.
0: Thank you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to speak to you.
0: Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find all of the references made in the episode in the show notes. If you're a fan of the show and enjoyed the episode, don't forget to like and share if you're listening on social media. Or subscribe if you're on YouTube or your preferred podcast platform. I love to hear feedback, so don't hesitate to reach out if you have any suggestions for the show or questions. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter under the handle IamRuiNoons. Until next time, keep growing.